Well, what an absolute joy it is to be here with you all. Uh, for some of you, many of you, it's again. Others of you, it's the first time. I'm looking out and seeing a good friend of mine, Michelle Jones. We go way back. We worked together or actually worshiped together at a church in Los Angeles back in the 90s. And uh, God is using her in great ways. So it's good seeing you, uh, Michelle. And then, of course, uh, good hanging with Charles, one of the pastors uh, on staff with us back at back at the, uh, the Summit Church. Let me just kind of set the stage once again. I, I said it this morning, but it bears repeating. Uh, this is not angry black man time. So um, this is not uh, about me just trying to, you know, ram anything down your throat or, or beat anyone up at all. Uh, in fact, I, um, I come to you uh, tonight as a reconciler and not an activist. Those are two different things. Activists tend to be um, issue-driven. They care about the what. Reconcilers tend to be people-driven. We care about the how. I, I think effective reconcilers do engage in activism, but activism to the reconciler is, is not the bottom line. The great commandment is not to love issues. It's to love people. So that's the posture that I take tonight. And I, I want to encourage uh, for those of us who would call ourselves followers of Jesus to consider that. When Paul talks about having received the ministry of reconciliation, I know that's primarily vertical. And he's talking in evangelistic tones. But I think a good secondary application has to do with how we contemplate issues of justice and righting wrongs. I don't think God just wants us to deal with the issue. He wants us to do it in such a way that, that there is the restoration of relationships. Last thing I'll say by way of a kind of a preamble uh, this evening, and that is um, I, I come using truth not as a knife but as a scalpel. There's a difference. Both hurt. Um, one harms, the other heals. And so the things that I want to say this evening, um, I don't say intentionally to bring any kind of hurt, but if there are, there are some ouch moments, it's because we are coming against America's historic sin. We are dealing with principalities and powers. And so I, I, I want us to sit under this and let the Spirit of God speak to us through this. This first session is going to, I'm gonna throw a lot at you. This first session, it's gonna be really informational uh, with pockets of inspiration, and then the last session uh, will be quickly inspirational, but let's get into it. There is, of course, no need to rehash the events of 2020, but to say that if you were to tell me at the end of 2019, there would be a worldwide pandemic totally altering the way we navigate life, leading us to quarantine for months and causing global economic chaos. And yet in the middle of all this, there'd be a several month stretch where no one would be talking about the pandemic because of the video documented killing of a black man who had a white police officer's knee on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. You would have won a lot of bets. George Floyd's killing was but one in a tragic succession this year of black pe people being killed by whites, many of them cops. 
It began with Ahmaud Arbery, then Brianna Taylor, George Floyd, and most re recently, Jacob Blake. These events have thrust us into the epicenter of what's been termed the neo-civil rights movement. My colleague Jamar Tisby says, um, whatever you're doing right now in this moment is exactly what you would have done in the 50s and the 60s. This is our, to quote a very well-known pastor, cultural moment. I've labeled my presentation today, um, CRT, critical race theory, a in parenthesis, unnecessary distraction, because I see it as both. On the one hand, it's a very necessary conversation that needs to be had. In recent years, critical race theory has really caught the attention of theologians, and much has been written about the subject. In a recent article on critical race theory that I commend to you on Medium, uh, Rasul Berry illumined a much-needed premise, and that is critical race theory needs to be nuanced having good and bad things about it. As usual, far too many Christians bypass the nuance and settle into their polarizing positions. But while I think critical race theory is a necessary conversation, I most certainly wouldn't be here if I didn't, I'm fearful and saddened that we have allowed it to become an unnecessary distraction. Jesus' indictment on the religious leaders of his day for being content to get caught into fine theological arguments while neglecting the weightier matters of the law like justice is a telling indictment on our day. My fear is that some of the loudest voices for or against critical race theory have muted those same voices when it comes to doing the work of biblical justice in this current milieu. These things are important to remember as we make our way through this talk. My aim today is to define critical race theory and unpack some of its major tributaries like systemic injustice, affirmative action, white privilege, and reparations. That's, that's right. We're going to talk about all of these things today. But before we go there, let's play a little Monopoly. Imagine my great-great-grandfather who was a slave working the plantations there in Conover, North Carolina. By the way, we have recently tracked down the family uh, that, uh, that owned my great-great-grandfather. We were so excited about this. True story. We were like, y'all used to own us. We'd love to take you to lunch. Um, <laughs> of course, they responded, ooh, uh, haven't done lunch with him yet, but um, totally came out wrong. But imagine my great-great-grandfather sits down with uh, a white person's great-great-grandfather who happened to be a slave owner, and they sit down to play a game of Monopoly. My great-great-grandfather passes go and wants to collect his $200, and the white slave master punches my great-great-grandfather in the face, says, I'll let you pass go, but you'll never get your $200. You'll, you'll never get any, any money. You'll never be able to buy property, and that's how the game is played in their generation. A few generations go by, and let's say my grandfather at the height of Jim Crow sits down with a white person's grandfather at the height of Jim Crow to continue that same game of Monopoly. My grandfather passes go, and the, the white person's grandfather says, you know what, I'm going to let you take the, the $200, and I'll, I'll even let you buy property. But you can only buy the purple and light blue properties. You can't have the red, the yellow, the green, and most certainly don't even think about boardwalk or park place. And in that generation, that's how the game is played. They die, and now you and I sit down to play. And you're apologetic 
Man, I'm sorry for the way my great-great-grandfather treated your great-great-grandfather. I'm sorry for the way my grandfather treated your grandfather. Yes, you can, you can pass, go, collect your money, buy anywhere you want. Is the game fair? Is it equal? It's not. So what do we do about this? This is the question critical race theory tries to answer. Critical race theory began in the 1970s when legal scholars noticed that the advances of the civil rights era had stalled, and even in some cases had been rolled back. These legal scholars had to have been frustrated that the 1970s show, The Jeffersons, anyone remember that? A show profiling a well-to-do black family who had moved on up to the east side had represented a minuscule minority, outliers even, and that black people were not realizing Martin's dream. So they began to come up with legal strategies to, to remedy the problem. In 1989, they held their first ever workshop, a retreat more or less, in Madison, Wisconsin. Major intellectual figures such as Derrick Bell, Kimberly Crenshaw, and Richard Delgado not only joined the workshop, but were major leaders in the critical race theory movement. Today, critical race theory is no longer confined solely in the legal realm but is discussed in most academic departments like English and sociology, political science, history, anthropology, and the like. Most recently, we have heard it in reference to the 1619 Project, which is seeking to give a fuller account of history, including in substance the narrative of slavery. President Trump has vowed to defund any school system using this project, saying it is a part of critical race theory. Some of you are thinking, what exactly is critical race theory? In its most simplistic terms, a critical race theorist is a person uh, described as one who sees the world in an oppressed, oppressor binary. It's an oversimplification, but if you are white, you represent to many in the critical race theory camp as the oppressor. Some would even go so far as to villainize you. If you're black or a woman or part of the LGBTQ plus community, you are the oppressed and virtue is ascribed to you. And of course, we can go into concepts of intersectionality where more virtue is given to people who represent multiple categories of oppression like a black woman or a black gay woman. Critical race theorist tends to blame a lot of things on white privilege or white fragility, while at the same time seeing themselves held back from their destiny by the man or the oppressor whites. On the other hand, those who are white and against critical race theory often see the world solely through individual terms. There's no systemic racism. If people just worked harder, you know, pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps, then they could make it. A critical race theorist would respond by saying the system has not given them boots. By the way, theologically speaking, James Cone and the liberation theologians were critical race theorists before there was critical race theory. Just read the book, God of the Oppressed, and his argument that God is only for the oppressed. Because of these things, critical race theory has become for many a, a modern curse word. 
If you believe in white privilege, you can very well be labeled a critical race theorist. If you affirm the concept of white fragility, you can count on being put in the critical race theory box. If you argue for reparations and believe in the idea of communal or generational culpability, you will be called a critical race theorist if you stand up for affirmative action. Ditto. Boy, this is so challenging. If you are a Christian, how are we to think about and navigate critical race theory? Reading the Bible, there's no doubt there are plenty of seasons in the life of Israel and followers of Jesus where there were clear cases of oppressed and oppressor. Israel in bondage to Egypt. Israel in the season of the Babylonian captivity. The people of God and Assyria. Christianity suffering oppression under Rome. What's more, we see instances of structural or systemic injustice Reparations and affirmative action, yes, all in the Bible. It's in there, folks. Hold on, I'll show you. So is God on the side of critical race theory, but on the other hand, we don't see God demonizing oppressors, but calling his people to love even their oppressors. Jonah is a stunning book on this topic. Here's God. He sends Jonah to the Assyrians Jonah gets mad, and then God declares his love for them. We see God telling Israel, while in Babylon, seek the welfare of Babylon where he had sent them. And consider the life and teachings of Jesus. The Jews got mad at him because Jesus refused to see the world through the lens of critical race theory. They wanted a political messiah who would fight for the oppressed Jews against the evil oppressor Romans. Instead, they got a Messiah who told them to love their enemies, to pay taxes to Caesar, and died on the cross for the likes of Roman centurions. Even more so, God is clear that the sons are not to be held accountable for the sins of their fathers or previous generations. So is God against reparations? See, here's what is beyond clear. God and the Bible are extremely nuanced when it comes to the issue of critical race theory. And it is this nuance or mystery that I want us to embrace. But there are some things we can really be clear on and walk with hope. So let's take a deep breath and dive in. Let's begin with white privilege. Critical race theory is all about, well, race, racism, and power. Given these broad and important categories, you must see critical race theory as a junk drawer that has several items thrown in. One of the items is white privilege. Now, before we can understand white privilege, we must understand race. In America, race is a social construct never to be confused with ethnicity. Race is used more times than not in this country, not biologically, but sociologically, to speak of a system where we extend or extract value from a person solely based on the color of their skin. In other words, blackness or whiteness by themselves mean nothing. As one Nigerian writer has quipped, in Africa there are no black people. It is only when I came to America that I realized I was black. 
Blackness and whiteness only have meaning in relation to the other in this demonic system of race. Think about that for a moment. There was a time in our nation's history where it meant something to be Irish or Italian. But over time, those ethnicities assimilated solely into the category of whiteness. And to be white in America is to be afforded privilege. The system has historically been set up and slanted towards whites. Jefferson Davis once said on the Senate floor to the U.S. Senate, this government was not founded by Negroes nor for Negroes, but by white men for white men. The inequality of the white and black races was stamped from the beginning. In a recent study, it was revealed that the average white family has a net worth 10 times greater than the average black family. White privilege in America in 2020 means you are less likely to be killed or harassed by police. It means you don't have to deal with the daily toll of race. You can sit and watch television that's biased towards you. You can sit in history classes that emphasize your narrative, and you can be colorblind. White privilege means if your white child goes missing, you can count on an extraordinarily longer period of time allocated by the media to find them than if the child was black. My wife is half Mexican, half Irish. All fine. <laughs> I remember when we were um, engaged just uh, some weeks, or rather I should say a few months from marriage, and um, we were looking for an apartment where we'd move into after we got married. And I remember Pasadena, Michelle, right there on Los Robles Avenue in between California and Del Mar, found a great uh, apartment. Um, and I, um, I asked the, 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 the landlord, an elderly white lady, I said, well, well, how much? And she looked at me up and down for a few moments, and she said, I'm going to need the first six months in advance. This is Pasadena, California. I said, this sounds strange. So I went home, and my wife, who you can't really tell what she is, I sent her to the same lady to inquire of the same thing, same apartment. She looked the same lady at my wife, fiance at the time, and said, just give me first and last months. This is what we are getting at when we talk about white privilege. But how are we to think about this as Christians? Philippians 2, 1 through 11 is so key here. We just read it. You may find it strange that I actually don't like the phrase white privilege because it demonizes privilege for the sake of privilege, and that's wrong. If privilege were sinful, then Jesus was sinful. No one was more privileged than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. A point Philippians 2 makes. The text says that though Jesus was God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Instead, Jesus humbled himself. In other words, in a stunning picture, Paul tells us that Jesus stewarded his divine privilege for our benefit. The Bible would say several things to white people. Don't put your identity in your whiteness. And as recipients of privilege, don't feel bad about your privilege so long as you are stewarding it well. To steward privilege in the way of Jesus is to disadvantage yourself for the advantage of others. Because Jesus used his privilege to suffer. 
and die on a cross so that we spiritually underprivileged might have life everlasting. Systemic racism. Major conversation piece today is this whole idea of systemic racism brought to light by the murder of our brother George Floyd. President Trump and William Barr, head of the Justice Department, at the least are hesitant about this concept of systemic racism, if not outright denying it. William Barr did as much when he was asked if there were two justice systems in America. He said, no, this line of thinking is actually congruent with white evangelicals. In their seminal book, Divided by Faith, white sociologists Emerson and Smith say, said that white evangelicals see sin in personal terms and not systemic ones. Therefore, the white evangelical approach is to focus on the heart through evangelism and discipleship, a kind of discipleship that never gets around to justice. What are we to make of this? The Bible gives many examples of systemic injustice, which makes sense, because if we're all sinners and you get a group of sinners to build systems, those systems will be tainted with sin. In Exodus, we see Pharaoh instituting a system of injustice when he legislates that the midwives kill the Jewish baby boys. Centuries later, King Herod would institute this same system in his attempt to kill the Messiah. I mean, just think of that. If you're a mother in ancient Egypt or Palestine, when these edicts are mandated, what are you to do? You are facing not so much an individual, but a whole system that has been commanded to kill your child. In the book of Amos, God chastises his people for having unbalanced scales and defrauding the poor. What do we call this? It's an unjust system. In Luke 19, we see Zacchaeus, who is described not just as a tax collector, but as the chief tax collector, meaning he is overseeing an unjust system based on fraud and extortion. Jesus' cleansing of the temple is dealing with an unjust system that is not only based on a dishonest commercialization of the temple, but has overtones of racism because it is set up by these Jews in the only place Gentiles could worship. The court of the Gentiles, Gentiles, on and on we could go. But what about in America? Yes, systemic injustice exists today. Of course, we could see it in slavery. Jim Crow was also a system of injustice where blacks were largely denied the right to vote through the system. They were forced to go to substandard schools, sit in the back of buses, and denied tons of other privileges. There was even a book called The Green Book, which was solely written to help blacks navigate systemic injustice on road trips while keeping their humanity intact. During this period, you had things like convict leasing. You ought to read the book Slavery by Another Name, where a person could be arrested for jaywalking, charged a steep fine, knowing he didn't have it, he'd be sent to work in labor camps until he paid off his debt, something that would rarely happen given the exorbitant interest rates. Then there's housing. In the book, The Color of Law, it lays open the collusion that took place between the government, real estate agents, lending companies, and communities to keep blacks out. This process has been described as reverse redlining. Systemic injustice in housing continues today, most clearly seen in companies like Wells Fargo being found guilty for targeting poor black families and giving them loans they knew they could never pay. 
the devastation that was inflicted on African-American communities in the 2008 financial crisis was so extensive, it led many cities to even sue the banks for these unjust loans. In many cases, the plaintiffs won. Systemic injustice is seen in the case of Colin Kaepernick in the NFL, which settled with him over the issue of colluding to keep him out, given his very public stance or knee on racism. Don't even get me started about Christian schools in the South. You know that narrative, don't you? Brown versus Board of Education happens in 1954. Christians in the South said, our kids will not go to school with black kids. So they knew they couldn't start alternative public schools. So what did they do? They started private Christian schools and priced blacks out. That, my friends, is systemic injustice. So how are we to deal with systemic injustice or racism? Well, let's open up a can of worms. I'm already in it. We'll call it reparations. It's hard to argue reparations biblically. The Bible speaks more to restitution than it does reparations. Reparations is more governmental in focus, while restitution is more individual. The concept of restitution is seen in several places. For example, in regards to a person who has wronged another, God says this in Numbers chapter 5, he shall confess his sin that he has committed, and he shall make full restitution for his wrong. Watch it now, adding a fifth to it and giving it to him whom he did the wrong. Notice that he not only has to pay it back materially, but has to add interest to it. This is telling, because restitution is so much more than giving back what was taken. It is more so about acknowledging that if I had not taken what I did, you would have been further down the road, thus interest. The closest thing we get to government, governmental reparations in the Bible is Exodus 12. Here the nation of Israel had been in slavery for over 400 years, and it's finally time to leave, but God doesn't want them to go empty-handed. Look at what happens. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. No, this wasn't something Egypt voted on in an effort to right the wrongs. It was done person to person, and God gave them favor. But the point is clear. After centuries of slavery, God didn't want them to go from bondage into freedom empty-handed. What's more is the New Testament. Now, the closest text in the New Testament on reparations is Luke 19, again, in the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus, who, as we just said, was over a system of injustice. Well, you know the story. Jesus invites himself over his home, and Zacchaeus says, you know what, Jesus, I've wronged a lot of people, and saying I'm sorry is not good enough, so up to half my goods I will give to the poor, and those whom I have defrauded, I will restore it back to them fourfold. Hear the interest? Jesus responds by saying, today... Salvation has come to your house. In other words, restitution is a gospel indicator light authenticating one's salvation. I know, I know, Zacchaeus is not paying back for things his great-grandfather did. He's seeking to materially right his wrongs. 
But nonetheless, hear it now. The spirit of the New Testament is to always go above and beyond the law. The spirit of the New Testament is never, what can I get away with? Or what's the bare minimum? But the spirit of the New Testament is, what leap should I take to right the wrongs? Because that's my brother, that's my sister. So for anyone to look at the plight of African Americans historically and merely shrug their shoulders and say, not my problem, is a person who just doesn't get the spirit of the Gospels nor the New Testament. While the Bible gives us a framework for thinking through reparations, I think the best case for reparations is actually in our own Constitution in history. We are told in the Constitution that one of our inalienable rights is the pursuit of happiness. Black folks have been denied this for so long that we have settled for just being people who matter. Like saying black lives matter is controversial, and we haven't even gotten to the constitutional part which says black lives should be happy. It's safe to say that African Americans have been denied the pursuit of happiness since day one in this country, which is our constitutional right. We can call history to bear witness that African Americans should have reparations. When I lived in the Bay Area, I was shocked to discover that the Fillmore, known at one time as the Harlem of the West for all of its African American residents, was originally a Japanese community in San Francisco. Shortly after Pearl Harbor was bombed, Asian hysteria flooded the country, and ultimately over 120,000 people of Japanese ancestry were pulled from their homes and sent into internment camps. The Fillmore now was vacated and given to the rising population of African Americans. Just think of that. They just gave Japanese homes to black people. Some years later, our country acknowledged our wrong done to the Asians and paid out $1.6 billion to the Asian community in reparations. In 1946, our government established the Indian Claims Commission to hear grievances from Native Americans over lost territories seized by our government. Ultimately, the government paid out $1.3 million to tribes and bands. Yet for some reason, when blacks talk about reparations, it's all of a sudden controversial. It shouldn't be for many reasons. The primary one being our government actually began the process of reparations with African Americans. As the Civil War was ending, Union generals were having a conversation with the African American community in Savannah. Coming out of that discussion, it was decided to take the over 400,000 acres of land seized from the Confederates and give it out in 40-acre allotments. This became known as 40 acres and a mule. This was a stunning act, way ahead of its time. Sadly, not, after the, not long after this order, President Andrew Johnson, Lincoln's successor, overturned the order and returned the land back to its original treasonous owners, the very ones who declared war on their own country. Just think about the power and healing that could have come had we stuck to this reparations plan. So how are we as Christians to respond to this? What does it mean to think and behave Christianly when it comes to reparations? This is going to be controversial. As an African-American follower of Jesus, the gospel would say that I should not depend on reparations for me to forgive you. 
If God says in the law that sons are not to pay for the sins of their father, then I should not let what your ancestors did to my people to hinder me from coming to the table in true reconciliation with you. But on the other side of the table, the gospel should push you in different ways. It should push you to say, whatever it takes to right the wrongs, then I'm up for it. What does this mean? Two examples. I have a white, Jesus-loving friend of mine who has done really well in business. He began to look around at all the racial turmoil and then at himself and felt as if white privilege had caused him to advance as far as he had in our society. Moved by this and the plight of African Americans, he decided to set up a reparations fund where he has donated a lot of money and in inviting his white friends to contribute to that fund as well. This isn't forced. Simply if you want to give. The fund is made up of many causes that will directly benefit the African-American community, one of which being the United Negro College Fund. He's asked me and other black pastors to help him think through this fund. What would Jesus say to him? I think he would say, today salvation has come to your house. I have another wealthy white friend of mine. I promise you all my white friends aren't wealthy. Um, <laughs> whose grandfather started a very well-known hotel chain. Playing golf together one day, he said he was troubled that for years, in the early days of the business, blacks could not stay at these hotels. Now he's living off of his grandfather's money while trying to push the business forward. What is he to do? He has decided to focus much of his real estate efforts in impoverished communities, helping poor African-American women to get affordable housing along with developing businesses which would benefit them directly without gentrifying those communities. What would Jesus say to him? Today, salvation has come to your house. All right, finally, let's go home on affirmative action. Again, we must remember that critical race theory began in the legal realm out of frustration that African Americans were not experiencing the promise gained through the civil rights movement. One of the ways they sought to remedy the problem of blacks not getting their fair share of opportunities when it came to colleges, universities, and the marketplace was to fight for what we would call affirmative action, which is intentionally targeting underrepresented people for consideration when it comes to admission into schools and jobs. The NFL employs this method with their highly publicized Rooney Rule, which requires teams to interview candidates of color whenever there's a coaching vacancy. Now, of course, affirmative action has become controversial, accompanied by cries of not fair by our white siblings. This is interesting because the subtle message of these cries is white innocence. When a person doesn't see themselves as white, they don't see themselves as being a part of an unfair system. And for sure, if they don't see the notion of systemic injustice, they will not be pleased with affirmative action. So a few things need to be said here. First, affirmative action is not the brainchild of critical race theorists, nor is it birthed out of a group of frustrated minorities. If by affirmative action you mean targeting a specific group for opportunities, then we must come to grips with a very hard truth. Whites have been doing this since our nation's inception. Tell me, what kind of person could only be president in 1865? Or what kind of person could only vote in 1932? Or what kind of person could only play in the major leagues in 1909? If you guess whites, tell them what they want, Alex. 
That sounds like affirmative action. So I want you to imagine you're playing in a football game. First half of the football game, the other team is getting all the calls by the refs. I mean, all the calls. They are cheating you out of everything. And because of that, you're getting beat 50 to nothing at the half. The referees come into your locker room at halftime and they apologize. Man, we are so sorry. We have wronged you. They write a nice apology statement. We have wronged you. And we want you to understand moving forward, we are going to call it fair and even. Are we good? No, we're not good. We're down 50 to nothing. So what are we to do? You'll have to slant things to the other side for a while. Not fair, but neither was the whole first half. This is what affirmative action is trying to do. So how are we as Christians to think about affirmative action? Well, and this is probably the most controversial thing I'll say to you in this lecture. What I've just described to you is the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election says we were all enslaved to a system called sin. Sin has not just colored our actions, but our affections and our hearts as well. Sin colors all of who we are. If sin were blue, we'd all be Smurfs. Now, the effect of this was to completely render us helpless and hopeless, unable to get to heaven and God on our own. Seeing us in our helpless condition, God came down and put on skin, walked with us, preached to us, and ultimately died for us, raising again the third day according to the Scriptures. And while Jesus died for the world, the doctrine of election says he has chosen some. We were chosen not because we were good little boys and girls. We were chosen not because of the letters behind our name or how smart we were or what zip code we lived in or what we did for the poor and the, or the ethnically other. We were chosen solely by the grace of God. Just like affirmative action gives people opportunities they would not have gotten other words otherwise, so election gives us an opportunity we have not gotten otherwise. Let's close with this. When I was in seminary, I shared earlier today, I was dead broke. I was po. Couldn't afford the other O and the R. I received a scholarship only for people of color like myself. See, my school at one time did not let African Americans join. And so they wrestled with their racist past and decided to have a form of reparations by offering black people a scholarship. I'm standing here today because of that kind of reparations. And I hate admitting it to you, I got a scholarship for something I had no control over, being black. There's no boasting here. Boasting is in merit-based scholarships. That I got in with a 4.0 and maintained a 4.0, that's the boasting. Well, friend, the gospel says there are no merit-based scholarships in the kingdom of God. Only grace-based. There's no boasting in that. Only giving glory to this remarkable God who through the cross dismantled the system of injustice called sin, blessed us with a beautiful inheritance reserved in heaven for us, gave us affirmative action through salvation, and now calls us to steward our heavenly privilege in such a way that others benefit. The gospel has given us a completely new identity as well. 
Writing to the Galatians, Paul says that in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, but that we are all one in Christ. My identity is not in my ethnicity or being oppressed. And your identity is not in your ethnicity or being a part of historic oppressors. The cross has leveled all of these things. No, Paul's not denying differences, nor is he saying to ignore injustices. But he's saying that the way forward is to walk in a new identity, a new humanity. The gospel flies at a much higher altitude than critical race theory. I mean, we're all familiar with the ugliness of apartheid and the havoc it wreaked on South Africa. We are also familiar with the country seeking to move forward into healing through an astounding set of gatherings called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. These gatherings were opportunities for whites to confess their atrocities exacted upon their black victims who would be there and to ask for forgiveness in one such gathering. I'll never forget it. Crowd of about 300 people. A white cop stood up and said in front of them all, during apartheid, I came to this woman's house. He points to a black woman. He said, me and my comrades came and we took her husband, bound him with ropes, doused him with gasoline, lit a match, set him on fire, made her watch as her husband screamed to his death. A few months later, he said, we came back got her only child, her son, did the same thing, beat him, bound him with ropes, doused him with gasoline, lit a match, set him on fire, made her watch. These are my atrocities. The crowd was hushed as he confessed. What would this woman do? Gathering her strength, this black woman stood and said, Sir, you have taken from me my only husband, the love of my life. You have killed my only child. You have wronged me and are in my debt. I am a relatively young woman with a lot of love to give, and I ask of you that if you would be so kind, would you come to my home in Soweto once a week and let me cook for you? And when you come, will you bring your laundry and allow me to clean for you? Sir, I forgive you. The crowd was still hushed. Finally, a group of black teenage boys began singing the old song written by the slave trader John Newton, Amazing Grace. Bishop Desmond Tutu sums it up in his award-winning book, No Future Without Forgiveness, as he seeks to articulate the powerful South African concept called Abutu. He says, when we say another person has a butu, we are saying humanity is caught up, is inextricably bound up in yours. A person is a person through other persons. This is not to say there's no place for justice, but it is to say we need each other. Tutu would have the audacity to say that, that Ubuntu means that I am incomplete, that something is missing in my humanity without others, even my offender. A failure to forgive, Abutu suggests, actually dehumanizes the offended in the same way that the offender, through their offenses, acted in a less than fully human way. All of this points to the cross. Through our sins, we have offended a holy God. God the offended extends forgiveness and draws us into reconciliation with him. Now we are more alive than we ever have been through the forgiveness of Christ. And yet the cross at the same time not only extends forgiveness, but has satisfied God's requirements for justice. 
The cross is the place where forgiveness and justice collide. Jesus' death has satisfied the wrath of God. This is the glorious doctrine of propitiation. So our new humanity brings together black and white, Chinese and Japanese, Germans and Jews, and so many others. And just like the lion lying down with the lamb in Revelation stuns the world, so we, this new community, through our new paradigm of relationships, will shock the world. May we do justice, seek forgiveness as extensions of the glorious gospel of Jesus. 